Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. I'm Brandon Munro. I'm the CEO of Bannerman Energy. We have a uranium project in Namibia called the Itango Uranium Project. It's a very large project. It has a world-class scale resource and now an ore reserve. And in the last couple of years, we've been reimagining the project with a streamlined pathway to development called the Itango 8 development. It enables us to get into production sooner with lower development hurdles. And once we're in production and profitable, we can look at expanding up to the original uh, contemplated production levels in our 2015 DFS. Brandon, welcome to our show. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me back on. Fantastic. So we, we spoke to you um, in the context of Bannerman Resources, now Bannerman Energy, uh, back in, in April. But I um, thought we'd better talk to you today about this uh, PFS that you've put out on Itango 8. Um, why, why did you need to do it now? No time like the present. Well, in truth, we, we had it ready and we wanted to get it out to the market as soon as we could. We gave a little bit of guidance in our quarterly about a month ago that we would be releasing early August and it couldn't be too much earlier than today. So uh, we're really happy with how it's come out and we're just excited to get it out into the marketplace and start talking about it. But what, what should it, what's it going to tell the market? Because it seems that the numbers all seem roughly what you've previously you know, told us. So what's, this, what's new? Is there anything new? Well, it's interesting because I, I have to keep reminding myself that to get a PFS that hits the same numbers as a scoping study or slightly improve it as we have, that in itself is quite unusual. Now, for us, when we're on the inside of a company, we've been telling our investors that we've got a solid scoping study. We think the numbers are representative. We really have a lot of belief behind them. And that's not surprising because we've already done a DFS on this project, but at a much larger scale. But we need, we need to take a step back and just remember that it's very unusual for us PFS to hit numbers and improve what's in a scoping study. Normally what you would have with a fresh project is a degree of optimism and uncertainty in a scoping study that struggles to bear out in a PFS. So I guess, Matt, in that sense, the fact that there isn't anything particularly different is a great endorsement of the high quality technical work that's been done on this project going all the way back to 2005. So it might not be as exciting as a big departure from the numbers, but I think it's something I'm quite happy to hang my hat on. So um, talk to me about this reimagining. You said, well, we reimagined it, right? So just remind us why you needed to do that, because you've got a, you've got a DFS already on, on the larger project. Why go through this process? Yeah, so for the folks who don't know our company, Bannerman Energy back in 2012 released a definitive feasibility study on the giant-sized Tango project, and we refreshed that in 2015. So that was a project that was contemplating a throughput of 20 million tonnes for the enormous average annual production of 7.2 million pounds per annum, ranking it up there at that stage amongst the top 10 uranium mines in the world once it was in production. Now, that was 2012, and the DFS was started before Fukushima in a very different market. 
And what we found is a project that's enormous like that, of course, comes with the corresponding capital cost. And the capital cost of that uh, particular iteration of our project was 793 million US dollars. For a project of that scale, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But in a bear market, that uh, wasn't very proportionate to our market capitalization and really started to raise question marks about the financeability of the project and threw up various development hurdles as a result. So what we started to do about two years ago was, as I said, started to reimagine the project and really started to look at what happens if we bring down the scale of production. Is there a way we can do that without hurting the economics? This project is a bulk tonnage project. That's what makes it competitive. And usually what happens with these very large bulk tonnage open pit projects is the bigger, the better. But a curious thing happened here, Matt, as you would remember, but some of the folks wouldn't know. We found that if we stayed within a pit shell design of about 50 to 60 million pounds, the stripping ratio came right down. And that's because the ore body protrudes its surface. It's it's a surface ore body and it's uh, outcropping in certain parts. So as long as we made the project small enough, we stayed within that pit shell, our strip ratio came down and given mining and mining of waste is a major part of our cost, we were able to get a benefit that way. So we could reduce the scale of the project, dramatically reduce capital and do that in such a way where it actually reduced the operating cost rather than increasing it. And so for that reason, we've just published the PFS, which has a capital cost, pre-production capital cost of $274 million, which compares very well with the $793 million that was released in 2015. And bear in mind, we've only halved the production. So we've come down to three and a half million pounds per annum of average production. So for us, that's a really good win and a really good disproportionate improvement in the CapEx whilst also improving the operating cost numbers. But isn't the problem with these African uranium plays is they're just such low-grade projects. They're not as exciting as some of the things, some of the numbers we're seeing out of the Athabasca Basin, for instance. So why should people be looking or believing that these African uranium stories are going to work? Well, there's two aspects to that. The first one is the low-grade. So yes, they are low-grade. That is the nature of uranium mining in Africa. However, the costs are also low. The costs of operating in Africa are low. The costs of developing a project are far reduced versus uh, other jurisdictions. But more importantly, we know we can generate producible pounds into the next cycle. In Namibia, where we're located in particular, we've got an extremely supportive government. We have a very supportive community who've been relying on uranium for 45 years in Wallfish Bay and Swakopmund to power the communities in a social sense. And we don't have all of those potential roadblocks that you can really see in first world mining jurisdictions when it comes to uranium. And uranium's a, an interesting commodity. It's quite different. Yes, you can have spectacularly high grades that are underground, but because of the radiological risk that it comes with that, it's not particularly straightforward to get the material out. 
There's robotics involved. There's various other high-tech applications that are necessary, whereas we are just as conventional as it comes, truck and shovel operation with a heap leech on that. Um, now, the, the other thing that you said is exciting. Now, you have to remember, excitement cuts both ways. Excitement isn't always good excitement. You do get, particularly in the resources game, uh, negative excitement as well. And that comes in the form of risk. That comes in the form of permitting delays. It comes in the form of cost delays, First Nations problems, all of those uh, risks that an investor faces. And it's not the excitement that you really want to find when you wake up and you see your portfolio well down because of one of those things. That's where we do have a distinct advantage in Africa generally, but particularly in Namibia, really stable jurisdiction, politically stable. We've been exporting uranium from Namibia for more than 45 years and we're a top five uranium producer in the world during that time. So it might not have the sex and the sizzle, but equally, I'd say that we're a, a solid performer that uh, enables investors to sleep well at night. So talk, talk to me about the assumptions that you've made on the pricing for this PFS, right? Because obviously spot price, which people kind of go to, um, hasn't really moved, you know, low, low 30s, so 30, 32, um, no sign of moving anytime soon. Um, you've had to make some assumptions about a price point which you've talked to the market about because you want to show it in the best possible light. So what have you assumed and what does that give us? We've assumed $65 as our average contracted price. Um, so let's put to one side the fact that term contracting over a long period of time has traded a significant premium to the spot price. As you point out, we would need spot prices to pretty much double to give us uh, that expected return. We're very comfortable with that. We've modelled out the entire sector. We've had very detailed macroeconomic analysis uh, that I've been intimately involved in for several years. And what we know is this. First of all, we know that a large proportion of current uranium production around the world is not economic at the current spot price. We've already seen significant uh, production go into care and maintenance both in Canada, Namibia and elsewhere, and that's for economic reasons. So we also know that the demand for nuclear power and therefore the demand for uranium isn't going anywhere. There are hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of sunk capital in nuclear power plants that will continue to operate and continue to deliver clean electricity into a decarbonised world that needs them more than ever. That uranium just simply has to be bought over a period of time. So the current price is unsustainable. If the current price stays where it is, the amount of production of uranium in the world will go down even further. And we're already running at a 15 to 20% deficit in the sector. Now, where that needs to go comes down to our economic and our macro modelling. We've got a belief that the uranium price needs to settle in the order of $75 to $80 over the medium term to incentivize enough new production to come on stream. So even after we've had those mines return from care and maintenance and start producing and supplying the utilities around the world, because of the growth profile of nuclear power, particularly into a decarbonized world, there's a need for both new projects to meet that new demand, but more importantly, 
new projects to replace the depleting production around the world as the incumbent assets run out of ore. So in this decade, four of the top 10 producing uranium mines have either already shut or are scheduled to close. And then the huge production centre in Kazatomprom, they're depleting significantly as well over the next several years. That new production has to come from somewhere. We know where the advanced projects are. They're all out there in the public domain. You can make some reasonable assumptions about their economics as we have, and you simply won't get enough of those projects coming on board to fill that demand unless you have an incentive price settling $75 to $80. So that's why we're very comfortable using 65, and we'd certainly uh, believe that there's upside above that as well. So talk to me about some of the numbers here, because at 65 bucks, you make just over 20% uh, IRR, post-tax IRR, okay? Would you, would you say that's encouraging, or is that at the low end of, of, of where you think you need to be? I'd say that's a solid result to give confidence that we'll be in production. And then for investors, it's up to them to form a view on where they believe uranium prices could or should get above $65 a pound. We do offer exceptional leverage above that because of the scale of our resource and the capacity that we've got to increase our production as we get into production and become profitable. So the nice thing about the Tango 8 is it's been designed in such a way that whilst we start at three and a half million pounds per annum of production, we're operating within the anticipated pit design for the very large project. So it's quite simple for us to either increase the life, of course, beyond the 15 years that we're contemplating, but also to increase production potentially up to that 7.2 million pounds that we'd previously earmarked as our production target. So that gives us some very interesting leverage. And the fact that there's a resource just at a tango of over 208, uh, 207 million pounds, plus satellite deposits, plus it's open at depth, um, it gives us that capacity to really grow into an improving uranium price environment. Oh, so that's interesting. So you've, you've, you've designed a Tango 8, the smaller project, in a way that doesn't affect a, a future acquirer uh, in terms of the economics if they wanted to go and make and build it up to the, the, the larger of the 7.2 million pounds per year operation. So that there's very little uh, um, initial um, cost over, to them over and above what you've already will have spent if you start with a smaller project. Well, that's right. It's, we've been very careful to make sure that it isn't embedding any impediments. And that's not always the case. Quite often to improve economics with a scaling down, you'll see high grading, you'll see preferential um, mining of a particular part of an ore body. It might start sterilizing parts. Whereas uh, you can see from our presentation that we're simply operating within the first few cutbacks of what we would do long-term anyway to access the full potential of this ore body. And then, of course, the way that we're setting up all of the processing infrastructure as well as the external infrastructure is all done with the objective in mind that we'll be bringing in uh, that additional processing capacity into the future. Um, talk to me about the MPV. I mean, has it gone up or down since the scoping study? Thankfully, it has gone up. So in the scoping study, our post-tax NPV at a discount rate of 8% was 212 million US dollars. And it's now up to 222 million US dollars. 
And that's also been helped by a slightly greater amount of metal that we'll be mining. The, the total volume of U308 over the 15 years has gone up by about 4%. Okay, and I've noted that you're targeting a DFS by Q3 next year, 4 million bucks being allocated to that. One, have you got the money? And two, is you're kind of skipping a stage there. Why, why can you do that? Yeah, so look, we do have the money. We've got 12.5 million as at 30 June, and we expect to need 4 million of that for the DFS. And uh, it's really just a case of moving straight on from the PFS to the DFS. It's very quick for a big project. And again, although it's a lot smaller than it was, uh, three and a half million pounds is still a very large project in this industry, make no mistake. But we're just fortunate because all of this work has been done before and it's been done to such a high standard that we can do a DFS on a very large project for $4 million in about a year. And so there's no steps that we're skipping as such. It's just that a number of those steps have already been done with the previous DFS. So the resource drilling is all done. The metallurgy, we've done extensive metallurgical work, including operating a pilot plant, and that hasn't changed. Um, the environmental work is all done. We've got an environmental clearance. We've got that permitting. So we're not starting at the beginning of that process, which can easily occupy a couple of years. So there's nothing that we're skipping. We're just going back to what, what has already been done. And, and I might add was done very, very well as well. Okay, so if I'm just looking forward, um, people have got to believe that this thing's going to get built. So are you the guys that are going to do that? Is the current board capable of doing that? Or are you just setting this up for some kind, some kind of M&A activity? Well, it's a good question to ask because expertise in uranium is uh, few and far between these days in the world. A lot of the expertise is retired or even moved on. And you obviously also want to have the specific expertise in the jurisdiction that you're operating in in order to get the most out of what a country like Namibia can offer. And we've made sure that we've got that in senior roles. So Mike Leach, who is our Namibian chairman and also sits on our board, he was the managing director of the Rossing Uranium Mine at a time when it was the largest uranium mine in the world. And in fact, he was the CFO for 15 years before that, intimately involved in the contracting and the marketing and all of those aspects of it. And Werner Evolt, who's our managing director in Namibia, he was mining manager at Rossing. He's been in the industry for a very long time. He's very involved in the Namibian Chamber of Mines and regarded as a real ESG leader uh, in Namibia. Um, for, my, for my own sins, I had the delight, and it really was a delight, of living in Namibia for almost six years. And that was uh, initially with Bannerman back in 2009. So I do know the country really well, and that's a huge advantage. I know the players, I know the, the people in government, um, I know the industry, and I know exactly how it works there, having learnt that firsthand. And I've had the opportunity to really understand the uranium sector as well. You know well, but for the folks who haven't, uh, haven't had the chance to pick over my CV, I am the co-chair of the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Demand Subgroup. So that's the body that WNA entrusts to forecast nuclear fuel and uranium demand out to 2040. And of course, you end up spending a lot of time really understanding the nuts and bolts 
and the future horizons of a sector when you've got that responsibility. And there's a few other interesting things I've been able to do as well, as including being a contributing expert to the UN's Economic Commission for Europe on uranium and, and various other industry bodies in Namibia and elsewhere. It's quite interesting. When you're talking about the, the team there, obviously with Mike Leach uh, and uh, the, the rest of the guys, at some point, the uranium mining stops becoming just a mining project. It becomes a marketing effort too, because you've got these, we talked about spot price earlier, so some people will look at the spot price and go, oh, it's, it's low. But for you guys, it's all about being able to deliver contracts or into contracts, long-term contracts at negotiated prices. So that's the difference between, you know, different companies. Some of you are going to be able to negotiate better than others. Some of you are going to be able to give comfort to the utilities that you are going to be, be able to deliver yellow cake uh, to them. Um, it, 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 so this team of yours, I mean, have you, have you got everyone you need or are you going to have to bulk up on that marketing component? We've got the key people in place and the marketing is a couple of aspects. It's obviously having relationships with the utilities and understanding how the industry works but it's also being able to give those utilities confidence that you know what you can do and you can manage the very specific uranium slash nuclear industry risks that exist. And that's where having Mike Leach involved is very important, Werner involved and, and also having the relationships with myself. But like any team, I mean, a big mine like this will end up employing 760 people at the mine and um, plus a few people in corporate. We will need to build all of that out. We don't want to be carrying a, a heavy um, overhead at the moment with having those sorts of people in place. Um, but it is my belief, and it's certainly the board's belief, that as long as you've got people in key leadership positions with very deep experience, both of Namibia and uranium, that you can then infill with all of the other roles that you need, uh, knowing that you've got that experience and in, uh, in Mike's case, that wisdom that can guide the entire team. Okay, then the reason I ask is because obviously at the pointy end of the spear, you need the right people to be able to open the doors and you know, get those conversations started, you know, soon, you know, possibly even before you start building, um, let alone before you start producing. And you know, how soon do you need to start having those conversations? Are they happening? At the moment, you, obviously, the PFS helps and people will be aware to your DFS of what the, what the scale of this thing is. But you, you've got two sets of conversations that can go on, one with potential acquirers uh, and, and funders. And then you've got the conversation with the market, which is we've, we're soon going to have pounds. We need X price for them. We want to have a conversation with you, or they'll maybe it's the other way around. They want to have a conversation with you. So, are those conversations happening? Is Mike leading those conversations now, or is it just not the right time yet? And if so, when is no, the right time? It's not the right time. So, when is the right time? It's not the right time. The, the, com the conversation that we're having, whether it's with financiers or in particular with the industry, is look, this is who we are. This is our credibility. This is how well we do our work. This is what we stand for and what our values are. And when the time is right, we'll come and have a more detailed conversation with you. And we found that that is a far better way to interact with our future customers than uh, hounding them when we've got a product that the market doesn't need yet. 
And that's self-evident from the current spot price. The utilities, they're very distracted at the moment. They've spent the last 18 months really in the trenches dealing with operational aspects of COVID. Uh, they're just starting to go on summer holidays for most of them in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and so it's very important aspect of sales and marketing to pick your timing. And we don't think the timing is right. And the feedback that we get from a number of our colleagues who are banging on the door um, would suggest that perhaps we have been right just to bide our time. Well, tell me about that because I, I'm intrigued because we've got a lot of arm waving, a lot of chatting. We get a, a bunch of CEOs come on here and say, yeah, we've hired marketing people. We're talking to utilities now. Um, they know who we are and, you know, we're, we're tendering all the time. It's, it's, it's what we need to do. It, and you, but what, do you, what do you mean you're hearing that that perhaps is not really the case? Well, as you say, there, there's a number of companies who are putting in a big marketing effort to try and obtain contracts right now, but uh, we haven't seen an announcement from any of those companies that they've succeeded. doesn't mean they're not making great progress, uh, but those contracts are not being signed at the moment. And equally, you can tune into one of Cameco's earnings calls where they'll uh, explain in quite some detail that the contracting that's being done is being done off market. It's being done via renewals and extensions and options with existing customers. And that's just how the market works. That's how it worked during uh, during the lead up to the last boom that we had in 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, there isn't a lot of contracting going on. There aren't a lot of pounds being committed to or bought. It's very quiet out there. And so, uh, the pounds that are being bought or committed to via long-term contracts are um, being bought through old customer relationships with the likes of Cameco. We need to wait for that process to wash out and wait for more demand to come to the market. And that's when the new players will get their opportunity. And in the meantime, we've got a really strong collegiate relationship with that, those utilities and those fuel buyers and the traders and the other market participants through the work that I've been doing with WNA and through the reputation that we've got and the individual relationships that come with all of that. Okay, and I'll finish off with this one actually, um, which is your thoughts on SPUT. So I think we were asked by one of our members um, on Crux Investor, which was um, the, obviously the, the, the listing on NYSE is a process that's gotta be gone through. And we've talked about this on the weekly Uranium show at Crux Investor, where, it could take just that little bit longer. It could be between you know four to nine months, right? Because it's it's the first time that obviously this has this has happened. And I think David um, uh, Campaglia is Campaglia is coming on on Thursday to actually talk talk us through that. But you know how how important to companies like you is the sprout? Um, physical, so the, 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 the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust going to be, is it going to be a massive catalyst moment or is it just a nice, slow, steady pressure, which will sort of, you'll end up at the right place eventually? There's no question that it will add to the pressure. You need to bear in mind that that primary pressure is going to come from nuclear utilities who have their contract coverage running out dramatically at a time when a large proportion of the world's current uranium production will be depleting. Uh, 
That's the primary pressure. You know, that is a volume of buying and a volume of demand that really dwarfs what financial players can do to the industry. However, having said that, the fact that you've got UPC now uh, melded into the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust with a bunch of different mechanisms that will enable it to be a more effective uh, raiser of capital and a more effective buyer of uranium, that's extremely useful from a timing sense because what that is doing is it's tightening up the market. The utilities over the last few years of deficit have been able to exist through basically running down their stockpiles. They've been underbuying or they've been delving into their strategic stockpiles that are maintained for very specific supply risk mitigation purposes. And they've been comfortable doing that because they haven't perceived an immediate shortage. And in the last 12 months, it's also been for reasons of COVID disruption and needing to direct their teams to more uh, immediate emergencies than an impending shortage of fuel in the next couple of years. So the fact that SPUT is now up and running and shortly will have the capacity to do frequent at the market raisings in Canada and within a period of time will access the much bigger markets in the US. That's a positive for us and every other uranium company because they will be competing for scarce spot pounds at a time when utilities will also start to re-enter the market. And the spot market is thinly traded. So any level of serious competition is going to have a relatively immediate price impact. That then will set up the, the foundations for a much, um, a much more um, anticipated and a, let's say, a more motivated term contracting round. And that's when we will get our opportunity. And because we're in Namibia and we've got environmental permitting and we've got a very advanced project that's got all of this body of high quality technical work with the team to be able to develop it, because that's when we will get our chance to deploy all of those advantages when there's an opportunity to talk to multiple utilities who all need to cover off their future uranium demands via term contracting at the same time. And I'm sure that SPUT will bring that moment forward. And I'm really excited to look and wait and see what impact they have on the market in the meantime. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.